to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. Hello everybody and welcome back. Firstly, I said at the end of last episode we were going to have an Irish fairy lore episode this time, but for one reason or another I've put that off to the next episode. Apologies for that, but it is still coming. But instead, there are a couple of stories around the theme of Scottish water horses in general, and I don't intend to keep you waiting, so let's launch straight into it with a little introductory piece that may come up again later, possibly, all about cattle rearing on an island in Uist. The birth happened overnight. It must have been an easy one. No sounds were heard from the barn, and most unusually by the time the woman of Clan MacLeod, who owned the cattle, found the little calf the next morning. It was already licked clean by its doting mother, and had had its first taste of milk, straight from the udder. The calf was male, as she had known it was going to be, and if it had been born into the herd of anyone else on Uist, it would have been treated exactly the same as any other male calf. But the MacLeod woman stopped when she saw it. It is well known that the MacLeods have a long association with the fairies, so much so that fairy blood was whispered to run in their veins, and the genes of their otherworldly ancestors expressed themselves in all kinds of peculiar ways throughout the MacLeod lineage. So when the woman set eyes on the newborn calf, she saw the similarity between it and herself. Something stirred deep within an ancient part of her inherited soul, and she knew that this calf was not like the others. She reasoned correctly that its mother must have strayed too close to the lock by which it grazed, and there met a very special type of bull. The day of its birth, the MacLeod woman ordered the construction of a sizable earthen house, the dimensions of which would make it the largest of such upon the island. Well, a project like that was most unusual, and it came at no small expense, with many having to be pulled away from their other tasks to construct it, as she insisted it must be completed as soon as possible. But she was prepared to pay for it. She had savings, not for this exact eventuality, but for some such eventuality. And well, this opportunity, for her community, she was willing to spend on them all. Even if the other people couldn't immediately appreciate the gift she was giving them, in time, she hoped that they would. The men worked in the rain and the wind and at night by burning torchlights, as the MacLeod woman demanded. Her monies alone might not have been enough to encourage such loyalty, but the intensity and the seriousness about her when speaking of the project's importance compelled them to continue. After a few days, which the MacLeod woman reckoned was soon enough, the strange work was complete, the workmen paid, dispersed, and all her money was gone. Of course they asked her what it was for and why, but in response to every question she simply shook her head 
and promised to say only when the time was right and not before. And they watched as she removed the newborn calf from out of her cattle, led it into the earthen house and left it there. Not to die, you understand, for she attended to it daily almost fastidiously, feeding it with the milk of seven of the finest cows in her herd, and she fed it that milk long, long past the time it should have been weaned. In fact, all the milk of her seven best cows for years went on feeding the growing calf. But not once did she let it out of that house, let it gaze upon the sky or chew the grass or see any of its own kind. The people gossiped about it, of course. But the woman of the MacLeod was well respected within the community, and while many speculated, as the years went on, most ignored this eccentricity, while others were quietly confident that her reasons for doing it were likely to be very good indeed. The earthen house was very large, and over the years within its walls the fay touched MacLeod bull grew and grew. So we're in Scotland for today's collection of stories. Stories connected by a common theme. They're separate tales, but they're all kinds of things that could happen to communities right across Scotland, from the dim and distant past, right up until almost the modern day. Apart from the more specific story of the bull on Uist I've teased with, all the other stories are the kind of events that have happened over and over again to many people over many years indeed at least if we believe the folklore. For in the wilds of Scotland, there are many supernatural creatures haunting the lonely places, and many lonely places for them to haunt. And in the case of these stories on this episode, they are haunting particularly the many rivers, lochs and seashores of the highlands, lowlands and islands all alike. There are literally hundreds of accounts recorded, and one should assume many times that number which have not made their way into the books. The form of these is less stories than first-hand tellings of encounters between the small human communities and those things that inhabit the wetter parts of the wilderness. Rather than discuss the theme in length, I'm going to launch into these vignettes of encounters with the supernatural relatively cold, and hopefully you'll soon get the measure of the multifarious nature of the Ekushka through these accounts. But before you do, just a little bit of taxonomy here, which I know might not be everybody's jam, but I'm just aware that many of you might already be familiar with the creatures known as the Kelpie and the Echushka. And you might know them as two separate creatures, because several internet sites, and indeed many relatively reputable books, try to make a clean separation between the two, stating that the two different creatures have some different attributes or powers, and most often repeating the claim that Kelpies live in rivers, and the Yakushka in locks and seas. But this division just isn't borne out by the folkloric accounts of these creatures. Now, there are certainly differences in the nature of the beasts between stories. As I said, the creature has a multifaceted, fluctuating nature. But these variances don't correspond to one creature or the other neatly. Sometimes these beings are called Kelpies, and sometimes they're called Yakushka but those are interchangeable terms. And throughout this episode, I'm going to be using them as such, basically at my own whim. So, that housekeeping over, let's turn our narrative telescope away from Uist, slightly northwards, and an indeterminate amount of years away, in either direction. 
The sun was just setting on a warm summer evening on the Isle of Lewis. During the summer season, the cattle would be sent to graze on the remote moors, hills and glens of the island, and accompanying them were sent young women. It wasn't the most interesting of jobs, watching over the cows, and I imagine it was fairly divisive in terms of how the job was received, with some women loving the isolation and time away from society, and others hating being away from the, by comparison, and only by comparison, hustle and bustle of the villagers. All across the island, to accommodate these seasonal workers, there were small stone huts called shielings. They still exist in places, and perhaps you can even rent one of these tiny shepherd's huts on Airbnb for the reasonable cost of about £250 a night, to really get back to nature and have an aesthetic Instagrammable experience because late-stage capitalism is weird. And I'm not dunking on anyone who would want to take up such an offer, by the way, live where a shepherd did hundreds of years ago for a high cost. I too claim to wish to return to nature, but also want Wi-Fi and an Airbnb host that I can trust. Now by their nature, the Sheeling are in remote and therefore often breathtakingly scenic places, and they were appreciated as such back then just as much as they are now, though I'm sure the transient inhabitants of them would trade all of that for a glimpse of a modern skyscrapered city, glowing neon in the night. And this tale starts with two young women. It's about dusk, and they're looking out over an extensive, empty landscape, with the sea just beyond it. Cousins, both called Mary, known as Dark Mary and Fair Mary, in reference to the colours of their hair. It had been a busy day as these days go, not that there was ever a totally easy day, for there was much involved in the work of looking after cattle, the details of which your humble narrator is not going to go into too deeply, because, you know, I'd bore you, but just trust me on this one, I definitely did my research. But by now the cows had been milked, a spell said to ensure good churning, and they'd eaten their evening meal, so they sat for a while in the doorway of their summer dwelling, sang as they knitted, and watched as the sun set in a blaze of red brilliance, seeming to light up the clouds as coals upon a fire. And as the light drained from that expanse of land all around them, they retreated into their small isolated shielding and settled in for the night. As was always the case in these cramped little huts, there was just one bed that they slept in together. Though, before you jump to conclusions, all kinds of people sharing a bed was pretty common back in those days. The norm, almost. And it doesn't share the implications that it might do today. I know it's laughed at as a trope, but in this case, they really were just roommates and the two roommates were just drifting off to sleep when, most unexpectedly and alarmingly, there came a knock at the door. The two cowherds started. Visitors weren't entirely unknown here. The occasional traveller could have reason to traverse the pastures, and very occasionally they bed down on a mat overnight. Hello? called out Fair Mary, getting up out of bed and going to the door as Dark Mary lit a light. To their relief, it was an old woman at the door. She looked tired and maybe a bit confused. I'm, I, I'm terribly sorry to bother, but, but can I trouble you for a bed? My, my journey's taking me longer than it used to, said the old woman, who by her accent and clothing was clearly a local to the island. They welcomed her in, chatted with her for a while, and she told them a bit of her wanderings around the villages of Lewis, and they told her how it went with the cows. It was with some irritation they noticed that she was not carrying a bedroll, 
free in the bed really was quite a squeeze, even if one was just a small wizened old woman. But the girls were polite and they made do. Fair Mary generously volunteered to take the middle despite it being the hottest place on that hot night. And soon, despite the discomfort, all three were fast asleep. It was not yet dawn when Dark Mary awoke. She was surprised, not clear exactly what it was that had disturbed her sleep. Facing the wall, she stared into the darkness, when she felt something wet dripping on the back of her neck. And then there was a low noise. She was out of the bed like a shot and turned round. In the gloom of that tiny hut, she could just make out shapes. The shape of something that still had the body of the old woman crouched on the bed. The shape of its elongated jaw clamped around the bloody neck of the shape of Fair Mary's lifeless corpse. A corpse in which chunks had already been torn from body and face. The creature looked up leisurely from its kill, huge lips curling over blood-splattered teeth at the end of its long, equine snout. And it seemed to smile as it chewed on some fleshy lump of what had been Fair Mary. Dark Mary stared in horror at this gory tableau, yet took in the eyes which seemed to sparkle, eyes, one on each side of that horse's head, that yet were still the eyes of a friendly but confused old woman. The elongated arms that held chunks of oozing, bloodied flesh were still some mockery of an elderly human's. Shock and cold terror froze Dark Mary, but just for an instant and then instinct took over and she fled, smashing open the doorway and running barefoot into the night. The very first rays of dawn were just coming over the horizon as Mary tore away from the ceiling, not feeling the rocks which cut into her bare feet, her poor cousin's blood dripping slick down her back. Terrified of looking behind her, but terrified of it being upon her, she risked a glance back as she continued to run. It stood in the doorway of their little hut. A strange warped figure with its oversized head, looking ridiculous if it wasn't so deeply terrifying. And the whole creature was growing and warping. What had been clothes stretching and changing into skin and hair, its limbs and its body lengthening, twisting. Mary couldn't look away as the Kelpie finished its transformation into a horse. There was no way she could outrun it in these wide open moors. It'd be on her in seconds. Shaking, she turned and stopped, readying herself for a fight she knew she'd lose. In mere moments, the teeth of the Kelpie would surely sink into her. But that morning, she was lucky. Now, Kelpies have no fear of sunlight, but possibly it was the light of dawn, or maybe it just had had its fill, but the horse didn't go for her. It grinned again with its viscerous, spattered jaws gave out a monstrous shriek that sounded neither hoarse nor human, and then it turned and headed towards the lock. Mary could still just about make out the shape of it when it reached the lock side and jumped in, disappearing back to its watery lair. When she was completely sure it wasn't about to emerge again, she finally collapsed, shrieking and sobbing as the summer sun rose behind her. 
The ceiling was pulled down in the end, and Fair Mary buried there, where she had died, with some of the stones from the ceiling used to make her cairn. That's about all there really is to be said of that sad story. I don't know whether Mary was ever the same again. And our story camera shifts again, travelling eastward across the water from Lewis to the rugged county of Sutherland, all hills and locks and sparse populations, then as now. It could be a month or two later, it might be a century or two earlier, or any other suitable time before the modern day. Who can say? And this day was a good day, for it was an afternoon and an evening off. Days off, true days off, when whatever event was being marked didn't require participation in some community gathering and worship, dances and singing. Those were rare and precious things indeed. And what's more, the weather was glorious. Morning work done, now the boys were off out to explore the countryside. I say boys, young men they were really, or at least that's how they thought of themselves. Just at that cusp of manhood, where they would play still, but Play games that mostly involve doing increasingly reckless things, goaded on by the rest of their compatriots in the hope of being recognised by their peers as the fittest and the bravest, and avoiding at all costs being seen as cowardly or dull. Off they'd headed up into the hills and down again towards the lock. Many foolhardy and courageous deeds had already been performed that day, and they had simply taken to strolling in the late afternoon. They were singing songs they knew, but changing the lyrics to be more boisterous. Words that they thought their mother and fathers would be shocked by. For this generation was currently engaged in the process of inventing sex. There were 13 of them in total. A good proportion of all the boys of their age from the villages and farms of this land. And they were, by and large, having a great time, free from their responsibilities. Nobody had yet attempted anything so stupid to have been injured in a way serious enough that it took the shine off the afternoon and meant they had to go get help. The lock shimmered blue and gold as the young men descended to its shore, past the deer on the hillside who nimbly leapt away into the woods as the rowdy party passed by. Down they went to the reeds and the rushes of the shore, where the wild ponies grazed, pausing from their feeding to eye these unusual interlopers cautiously. And rightly so, for the lads made a beeline for them, breaking off into smaller groups to chase the ponies, leap on their backs as they could, riding the poor animals around to great amusement for everyone who wasn't a lockside pony trying to have a peaceful life. Whoa, look at this! shouted over the eldest of the young men suddenly, in a voice that demanded attention. And the others turned to see him throw himself astride a horse, a great deal bigger than the rest, a horse whose coat was the colour of hay in evening light, a shimmering gold. The horse barely seemed to register the imposition of its rider, and kept its head down, tearing up the thick green grass and chewing. The other lads leapt off their own ponies and wandered over. That is a beautiful horse! This must belong to somebody, surely. 
for such a noble and well-kept looking animal was not to be found roaming the wilds. But there was no bridle or shoes. A second lad leapt on behind the first, and now the horse seemed to take more notice, raising its head and regarding the excitable lads who were now swarming towards it. Up swung a third and a fourth, as the horse started a gentle trot towards the other boys, stopping and stooping obligingly by them. It's not clear what exactly it was that clouded the lad's mind in that instant, so they did not notice it strange as a fifth swung up enthusiastically, and then a sixth, each lad only fitting because the length of the creature's back was extending inch by inch to accommodate every new rider. It might have been simple high spirits and excitement, doubting in some of their minds but not wanting to spoil the fun. But given the obvious changes in the beast and the sheer number of them that eventually fitted on, well, this explanation seems to be a stretch. More likely the creature, let's call it what it was, the Kelpie, exuded some strange glamour which blinded the lads to the uncanny eeriness of what was occurring as they enthusiastically lined themselves up for the slaughter. All but one of the lads was now on the back of the horse. The youngest. He looked up at what was now a very tall horse, and he couldn't quite make it up. He called to his brother, who was at the rear, Help me up. And as he did so, he placed just a finger on the sleek golden pile of the horse. It sunk in. His elder brother reached down to give him a hand up, and to take his hand, the younger pulled his finger away from the horse. Except this didn't happen. He tugged at his hand, and then, First with simple confusion, the lad looked intently at his finger, tugged on it a couple more times, increasingly desperately. It was stuck fast. He might have had no conception of modern flypaper, but honey to catch flies is an old technique indeed. A bolt of white-hot terror struck the boy then. He screamed. His brother tried to jump down to see what the matter was, and to his horror he found himself stuck fast to the horse. He screamed too, and that shattered the spell over them. The horse started to move. Horrified screams came from all over now as the young men discovered their predicament. The Akushka's hooves thundered as it headed straight towards the lock. There was panic and confusion and lots and lots of screaming. The eldest at the front tried to strike the creature's head, but he'd already gripped hold and couldn't even loosen his hands to raise the blow. The quickest thinking were trying to struggle out of trousers where they had them on, but most had skin in contact somewhere with the monster, and there was barely any time before they'd be in the water. The youngest lad was being wrenched along by that single finger, running full pelt to keep up, trying not to place any more of himself in contact with the sticky skin. He fought quickest of all. The young lad whipped out his knife, and with a bold decisiveness and gritty resolve I find hard to imagine, he hacked at his finger. Blood poured out and bone broke, splitting the joint messily. He didn't quite succeed in severing it, but threw himself away from the horse, ripping the top of his finger violently from his hand. And he fell, landing with a splash in the shallows, as, with a mightier splash, the bellowing Kelpie plunged into the lock, taking twelve screaming young men and half a finger with it. 
Ripples spread out from the point they'd gone in and faded. There was an eerie stillness to the lock contrasted to the sounds of terror. The only noise was the gentle lapping of the waves against the shore, the pained panting of the surviving boy, and the busy hum of the bees. The younger stared at that silent lock, willing his compatriots to rise up again, begging them to, waiting and waiting for them to surface long after the time he knew they must have drowned, or more likely, worse. Eventually, he went for help. That evening as the sun was setting, a group from the village came, with torches and swords and charms worn round necks and stuffed into pockets. There were bits of clothing floating in the waters of the lock, caps and shirts, all torn up. At the water's edge, one man made a grisly find. A human liver, another here. Not all twelve, for surely the horse had not finished feasting yet. Of the rest of the bodies, there was no sign. It would take a generation for the little community to recover, and for decades no one went near the lock. The children were warned off it by the old man with nine fingers. But eventually the stories would pass into legend, cease to be believed, arrogant young men looking for adventure dismissed the tales of their ancestors as so much hogwash, and chanced to chase the lockside ponies again. At this point of the episode, I hope you're getting a bit of a feel for the nature of these creatures. Maybe picking up some general vibes, you know. Shape-changing, water-dwelling, can transform between horse and human. Malevolent, murderous and merciless. Echushka are some of the most dangerous and violent creatures in all of Scottish folklore. Perhaps succeeded only by humanity itself in their propensity for brutal savagery. Amphibious terrors that can strike day or night and who can take many lives with ease. But just in case you've not got the message, another example perhaps. We're back on Uis now, which, if you remember, is where we started this episode. Once again, it's a fine summer's afternoon. I feel I should add in here, Kelpies do attack in poor weather and at winter. It just so happens the tales I've chosen have all fallen on glorious days, and it pleases me to imagine such as I record at this unusually dark end to April. So, a lovely summer day, and we have a story of another cowherd, for a lot of the people on the islands were such at the time, especially those who had reason to stray into the wilds. Anna was her name, and she wasn't tending to her cows that far away from the village that she called home. No overnighting in a remote shearing for her. She was at the lock and multitasking, watching the herd that grazed there while doing her washing in a stream that fed the lake. She had just finished with the task and was sitting resting when she noticed a man approaching her. A fine, handsome young man indeed. Anna found herself smiling at him before she'd consciously decided to do it. His clothes marked him out as a man of a rank not too dissimilar to her own, perhaps even slightly higher, and the unmarried Anna was definitely warming to the man at very first glance, especially as he fully returned her friendly smile. Now you probably have some idea of what is coming, so lest you assume that Anna was simply an idiot, you should know that it was not that unusual in days like this for travellers to walk between places, so 
what today might be considered a significant height requiring days worth of careful planning was not so much here. And while unknown visitors on their way to somewhere or another weren't exactly common, they weren't rare enough to cause concern either. And more often they were a source of interest, bringing news and stories and the like. The man and the woman fell into conversation. He was friendly, but more than that, he was funny and a little flirty. And Anna reciprocated. She felt at ease with this man, who said he'd been walking the whole day through. Soon they were sitting side by side, laughing and joking, with a good energy in the air between them. And the handsome stranger made a somewhat unusual request of Anna. I'm so tired of walking. Do you mind if I take a quick sleep on your lap and then we can go to your village together? She was happy, very happy, to sit a while longer, and because she liked the man, she agreed. He placed his head on her lap, and soon he was gently asleep, and she sat gazing out at the lock, all full of wild anticipation. Two asides here. Number one, I'm about 60% sure that I'm not meant to have read into this folktale that the two of them have just shared an intimate moment. But only about 60%, maybe even 55%. It is absolutely possible that they just have, and I'm reading it too innocent. Aside number two. Now, you might be thinking, Graham, come on, just how stupid is this woman? Even in a world full of non supernatural threats, it seems really not very bright to let some strange man sleep on your lap. And I'm going to address that by saying firstly, no victim blaming here. But secondly, do not underestimate the power of the passions. Anna had come of age, to use an awful phrase, maybe at a time when there were no men she found interesting or attractive around her. And here she meets one, and her libidinous energies are overriding a lot of the brain functions that would otherwise be operating here with her mind firmly railroaded into making sure she does not mess this opportunity up, because it ain't coming again. You might think you know what this is like, but whoever you are listening to this, you've almost certainly got dating apps at the very least. Not necessarily perfect, I agree, but there are options. And even if you've not got that, well, then, you know, you've seen stuff. There's probably your mum's Mills and Boone you can sneak a read of, or the lingerie section of the index catalogue to flick through. Or possibly even some kind of fancy electronic versions of those that people might use for their um, pleasure today. I wouldn't know myself, of course. But she, she had none of this, not a shred of it. Can you imagine being in a position so deprived of any form of lustful excitement, just what your mind might be capable of doing when you encounter a friendly, good-looking stranger who seems a little bit into you, but not in a threatening way? Especially when you haven't just sat through a couple of stories about a shape-shifting water creature who brutally eats people. So that's my response to you listeners, who I suddenly realise I may have alienated by ascribing to you thoughts you likely didn't have, which I then go on to oh so cleverly dismiss, even though I've actually just argued with myself, not you. I'm not sure this is a very effective rhetorical or narrative technique, thought the listener, stupidly. Right, we are getting off of track. And anyway... Whatever you think of Anna's decision so far, she is about to redeem herself. Unfortunately, 
Getting back into the story means that she too is going to have to experience that cold, sudden rush of horror, as have all the previous victims, when they realised. For her it came as she gazed down lovingly at the thick black locks of the stranger's hair. There was some kind of water weed in it. He must have been for a swim. Ever so gently she went to brush it out, but as she stroked down his lock she noticed that there was more of it, and in fact the more she looked, the more she noticed. The green weed seemed to be entangled under all of his hair, and when she tried to brush a piece out, she found that it wasn't caught in his hair at all. It was growing from his head. There it was, that shock, that fear, icy in her blood. Somehow she stayed still, didn't even let out a quickly stifled cry that might have woken him. Now she knew enough to know what he was. The weeds in the hair were a sure sign. This was no bodice ripper hero, but an Erkushka sleeping gently on her lap. And when it awoke, it would likely be her who was ripped apart. She'd wake it if she moved, she was sure of it. So she just had to sit there, trying not to scream, racking her brains. And an idea did occur to Anna. A desperate, dangerous idea. She had on her a pair of scissors which she reached for. Now she didn't simply stab them straight into the creature, though if it did wake up she might have to give that a go. But that was a backup plan. Instead, with the very greatest of care, she began to cut her dress around the creature's head. She winced with each press of the blades together, with each sound of cloth cut that seemed to echo in her ears. She went as fast as she possibly could, and conversely, slowly, oh so very slowly and carefully, to avoid waking the sleeping monstrosity. After what seemed like an agonisingly long time, but which had perhaps been but ten minutes. The man's head, the Kelpie's head, was on a piece of her dress detached from the rest. And gently, oh so gently, Anna stretched taut that piece of fabric, held it tight as she moved her legs from under him, and then with the very greatest of care, she lowered the piece of fabric onto the thankfully soft moss where her legs had been. And when his head was upon it, she eventually let go of the fabric. Now he probably did that (laughs) noise that people always do in films when it looks like they're going to wake up, but then they don't. And he didn't. There lay the Kelpie, his head peacefully resting on a cut-out piece of dress. Shakily, Anna got to her feet walked away unsteadily, taking small, quiet steps. But she wasn't that far away when she broke into an all-out sprint. As she approached the village, she was shouting at the top of her lungs, Kelpie! There's a Kelpie coming! It's coming for me! From behind her came a bellow. A neigh and a shriek and a roar all mixed into one. It had woken up finally. And it was furious. At her cries, the villagers rushed out of their houses to see Anna pelting towards them in half a dress. And, quite far behind her but gaining fast, was a huge white horse, 
no pony this, and it was shrieking unnaturally as it galloped. That Anna had reached the village now seemed to make little difference to the beast. It was bound straight for them, and it seemed determined to catch her regardless, and quite possibly take on the rest of the villagers afterwards. The woman of Clan MacLeod was sitting outside that evening, as she always was. For seven years the woman of Clan MacLeod had been raising the fairy bull. For seven years it had lived in the dark alone. For seven years it had been fed only by the milk of her seven best cows. For this moment. The MacLeod woman heard the commotion, heard Anna's warnings of the beast, heard its roars a split second later, and then saw the thing pursuing her in all its awfulness. Up jumped MacLeod. She leapt with a sprightliness that belied her age, and in a loud, commanding voice that brooked no disagreement, she shouted out to all the villagers who could hear her, Release the bull! People turned to her, and she repeated, Let loose the bull in the earthen house. Go, do it right away! There was confusion for a moment. Some of the slower people looked to ask questions, but others heeded her meaning immediately. And as the monstrous horse bared down on the village from one direction, in the other ran the villagers to throw open the doors of the earthen house. The rope that tied the bull was loosened by a brave man, spurred on by the hellish neighing of the kelpie from outside and the screams of those fleeing it. The rope fell. The bull was free. The Erhushka was in the village now. It had slowed and was walking almost leisurely through the dirt track in the centre, regarding the houses on either side hungrily. The MacLeod woman was the only one who didn't run from it. She stood, staring at it. The creature saw her, met her gaze, raised its head topped with a waterweed enwrapped mane, and it bellowed once more, and from behind the MacLeod woman strode the bull. Upon its freedom it had taken a moment or two for it to adjust. All those years of darkness mostly, of not being able to see the world, of not being able to move freely outside of the confines of this house. Now I'm sure if it had been a normal bull, things would have been very different indeed. Its muscle development would have suffered immensely. It would be confused, terrified even, as it took its first faltering steps into the outside world. But the point of this was that this was not a normal bull. It confidently took its first steps into the world, finally at liberty. It looked around, regarded the village it found itself in as it left its little house behind it. And then it heard the roar of the water horse, and magnetically it was drawn to them. In a few moments it was striding down the road towards the creature. Up it came from behind the MacLeod woman, resolutely facing down the Kelpie. While some might have held a grudge being cooped up so long, the bull had nothing but the kindest feelings towards the woman who had raised it. But it was not to defend her that it lowered its head when it saw the water horse. No, it was something more basic. For in that creature it recognised something of itself, but a warped, twisted version of it. And this spark of recognition triggered a deep primal hatred within the bull. It bellowed itself. 
and likewise, as the Kelpie saw the bull, it found itself overcome by a deep rage, as it recognised the form of the fairy bull, the water bull, the two species, foes since time immemorial. Thoughts of feasting on the MacLeod, Woman or Anna or any of the other villagers disappeared from its mind. It steeled itself for a fight, its form shifting, becoming as muscular as its magic allowed. Its jaws extended, its horse teeth became sharper. The bull roared and charged, and the kelpie roared and charged right back. The ground shook as the two collided. The villagers watched the epic struggle from as safe a distance as possible, watched as the two supernatural animals ferociously battled. They kicked at each other, and the kelpie sank its teeth into the bull's flesh while the horns of the bull gored the sides of the kelpie. Walls, fences, and even the odd house was destroyed as one or other of the animal was flung into them. Rivulets of blood ran from the two, and soon the ground under them was thick red with it. Sometimes it seemed like the bull was winning, other times the kelpie, as each dealt and received injuries that would have killed the regular animal. Back and forth they went, the sounds of the battle rocking land and sea for miles around, as though the pits of hell had opened up on Uist. But gradually, incrementally, bout after bout, it became clear that the bull was pushing the kelpie out of the village, towards the lock. The kelpie roared in frustration, and its actions got more panicked, lashing out wildly, and eventually starting to exhaust even its unnatural strength. The monster was picking itself up off the floor after one vicious bout, when the bull, a mess of wounds itself, backed off and gave a mighty charge, hooves thundering and shaking the ground. It hit the kelpie square on the side, and the impact flung the beast into the lock, and the bull dived in afterwards. The two emerged just once more, out in the middle of the lock, still tearing at each other. And then they finally sank down deep into its depths. Amongst the humans, there were a few minor injuries sustained, but no one was dead. A few days later, after the cleaning up was done, they found the liver of the horse on the lock side, and a little way away, a horn from the bull was washed up. Nothing else was seen of either animal ever again. From that day forth, the MacLeod woman never had to worry for any help. Anna was a lot more cautious around strangers, and that village in Uist at least was free from the terror of the Kelpie. But across the rest of the islands, across the highlands and across the lowlands, people still lived in terror of those creatures that lurked beneath the water. So, if you're in Scotland and near a body of water, be very careful of any horses, any men, any women. Just be very careful in general, really. Watch out for green weed in the hair, and if you want to be really safe, I suggest you take a fairy bull along with you. Hope you enjoyed those tales, everyone. Okay, let's talk Kelpies. 
I really like the Kelpie as a folkloric creature. Its sheer level of menace makes it a great horror staple, and the stories around it really are dark, vicious, and unrelenting. The story of the fairy bull is particularly wild, and I like that wonderful tale of how to fight one folkloric creature with another, which isn't a motif that crops up that often. It really appeals to me, and I definitely picture the fight as being very cinematic, you know, with kaijus, obviously, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah type battle, with the two creatures throwing each other around the village. It's an interesting narrative for placing the women at the centre as well, and it highlights a motif that has appeared a few times on the podcast, that the only real defence against the supernatural outside of the church is the magic workers within human society, and often indeed the church is useless itself, so you're just left with those people to help you out. And such people really existed within the societies that these tales come from. Anyway, the kelp is great as a monster. I changed these stories very little and added in very little, certainly compared to how I normally do. So what you've got here really showcases some of the variety of the stories that you have about these creatures. And there are a lot of stories about the Ekushka and the Kelpie. These tales crop up in accounts from particularly late 19th century and early 20th century folklore. There are hundreds of versions of these collected. We're not just talking one or two sources like we are for many stories I tell here. This is a very widespread belief right across Scotland. Or if not a belief, at least a very widespread set of tales. And though the stories of them mostly come from the 19th century, there is some evidence that the legends of the Echushka in Scotland are much older than that. We've got references to the word Kelpie going back to at least the 17th century, and lake monsters go back much further than that. It's sometimes claimed that a 6th century account, whereby St Columba faces down the Loch Ness monster, yep, that's a thing that happened, shows the Loch Ness monster as a Kelpie but it's not a horse in there, so even though there might be a connection between aquatic dangers, I don't actually think that's correct, but it's often said. It is also often contended that the mysterious Pictish beast is a Kelpie. The Pictish beast is a symbol carved by, well, the Picts, on stones between the 6th and 9th century. It shows a difficult-to-identify animal that's a bit like a dragon and a bit like a dolphin, and some people say an elephant, but I can't really see that. There's a picture of it on the website if you're interested. I do think it's probably not a Kelpie, but judge for yourself. If it was, that would make it very old indeed. Right, before I go on, I need to acknowledge the debt I have to Oda Labornia, whose 2002 thesis has been incredibly useful in all the research for this piece. The dissertation in itself is very useful and interesting, but even more so is the fact that normally I have to go to lots of primary sources to get my information. But her thesis collects together all those stories in one place without actually changing them. Her stories of the Echushka and the Kelpie are a massive appendix of over 300 tales, saving me a lot of work. Not that I would have looked at that many myself, you understand. It's a fascinating read and I've linked to it on the website under sources on the episode page if you want to go have a look. Now, in this episode, I've told variants of three of the more common stories of the Kelpie, but there are a few additional types of tales. Quite a lot of them just have people straight up killed by the Kelpie, either devoured or much more usually drowned. Usually a man or a child is lured by it in horse form. Sometimes a woman is lured in by its seductive male guise. And then that's the end of them. There are far less stories of Kelpies turning into women to seduce men and kill them, 
it's not unheard of, but it is very rare. But there are enough other such creatures in Scottish folklore anyway, so killing men by being an attractive woman is a rather crowded market. Now, a rather radically different story type is one where a Kelpie and a human woman get together, but rather than murdering her, they actually have a child. There's actually a kind of sad story where a woman abandons a Kelpie after giving birth to his child and then discovering what he is. But she can't resist going back to check on him and listening in kind of at the door of his Kelpie cave or whatever, she hears him singing a sad lullaby to their child about how she has abandoned it. The possibility of Kelpies and humans having children together, which is very similar to the belief about fairies and humans having children together, which I referenced in the episode, leads to possibly the most fascinating line I came across. This is a report of a piece of folklore collected in the uh, 19th century. It says, quote, A native of the county of Sutherland said that there was a family of Kelpies living there at one time. The reciter says that he himself saw some that were descended from them. They were working at the Highland Railway and were as respectable as other people. End quote. Which is quite something. Looking at other story types, there are different narratives about fighting back against the Kelpies, not just with fairy bulls, but using silver bullets, and in one case a rather elaborate hook system. The other key story type I missed is the taming of a Kelpie. This is a version where the Kelpie is held prisoner, usually by means of a magical bridle, and forced to work as a normal farm horse, but with super strength and super speed. Sometimes this works well for the human in question, sometimes the Kelpie escapes, sometimes the Kelpie escapes and then murders the farmer who enslaved it. The kind of range of outcomes you might expect in real life, actually. Now, for reasons I'll come on to discuss, Kelpies are specifically Scottish, but they do tie into a larger international folklore about water-dwelling creatures that drown people. In Germanic and Scandinavian regions, you've got the Nixie, or many other similar names. These are water-dwelling, usually humanoid creatures that do drowning, often by luring children and adults in, by invitations to play and seduction, respectively. Similar to the Kelpie in that respect. Such water-dwelling creatures do crop up in English folklore as well. For instance, there's Jenny Greenteeth that we mentioned briefly on the Manchester episode, and there's also a general link between water monsters that eat and drown people, which is a very common trope in lots of different areas. I don't think that's too surprising at all, because, well, rivers and lakes are dangerous places. People can very easily drown there, and it's not a stretch at all to imagine that it's monsters causing this. Though, of course, folklore is rarely quite so simple in the explanations of its origins, and there's a lot of variation on that very simple premise. Now, I'm going to just mention here the whole crocodile-slash-hippopotamus thing, because, well, the word Nixie is very similar to a word for crocodile, and while a water horse seems like a strange idea, the word hippopotamus, which comes pretty directly from ancient Greek, actually means river horse. And these are both animals that live in water that really can kill someone very easily indeed. So it's sometimes mentioned that maybe these stories are memories or travellers' tales or tales passed down, whatever, of these animals changed. Which possibly, but I think it's unlikely, um, there's certainly not really much evidence of that happening. And if that was the case, you'd have to explain why, say, the water horse only really crops up in Scandinavian and Celtic regions 
rather than maybe everywhere else where you might expect it. So some variants of these river-dwelling spirits which I've mentioned are horses, specifically in Scandinavia where there is a very similar animal, where there is a very similar animal to a kelpie which has many of the same legends associated with it. Now, as well as the Germanic and Scandinavian spirits, of which a small number of horses, there's also a wider Celtic tradition of water horses. So in Ireland you have basically the same legends crop up, there's a variant from Wales and also from the Isle of Man. To make this even more confusing, there are also horse stories from folklore that involve being taken from a wild ride and sometimes even killed at the end of that, but do not involve any drowning. So, to summarise so far, there's a wide range of legends of creatures that drown people in European folklore, but horses as that creature are more localised to Celtic and Scandinavian areas, particularly strong in Scotland. Now, horses seem to me to be a very strange animal to connect with water, putting aside the rather dubious hippopotamus connection, but this is something that's clearly been going on for a very long time indeed. The Greek god Poseidon was often portrayed with many hippocampus, which are half-fish, half-horse creatures, basically horse mermaids, and there are half-fish, half-animal creations going back over two and a half thousand years in Greece. Though while horses are a favourite to combine, the torsos of other animals are also often shown with a fishtail, Capricorn for instance, which is half-goat, half-fish. But obviously a kelpie isn't quite like those distant possible ancestors of it, because it has the shape-shifting aspect, it's a full horse and a full human, it, it doesn't look very much like a mermaid version of a horse. So I said kelpies are unique to Scotland, but there are wider stories of water horses. Well, what makes kelpies unique? The key factor seems to be that in most of the other stories, the horse never transforms into a human. Elsewhere you only get the ones with the drowning on the horse's back or making it work for you or something like that where the creature remains as a horse. It's the Scottish variants in particular that has the three elements to it. Aquatic horse and ability to turn into a human. And so yes, you then get a whole load of other stories that can exist about this. The seduction, naturally. The turning up to remote shielings and just murdering people, which is a crazy story by the way. I mean that one doesn't even involve drowning, it just disappears off into a lake at the end. All those elements are specific to stories told in Scotland, or just perhaps a creature that actually lives in Scotland. And this is where the meaning of the stories can get much more complex. Rather than just being about the dangers of water, then we've got say the tales of seduction, being about what happens if you step outside of the sexual norms and gender roles of your society. To quote from Borgner on the seduction tale, quote, Thus the often quite graphic ending of the legend works well as a warning, and the death of the maiden can also be read as the metaphorical social death promised to the real girl who did not conform to the moral codes of her environment. End quote. Which is pretty dark. What this all means is that in the Kelpie you have a very highly developed mythological creature here. What I mean by that is when it comes to Kelpies, you can imagine that the ones that fall genuinely in love with their human wives are still the same creatures that come ashore and murder people. And I think that makes Tales of the Kelpies much deeper, rich in potential for story than many similar kind of beings which are much more one-off. And that might be one reason we've got quite so many legends of them. 
extrapolate this a bit further, if you'll permit me a slight indulgence. I got thinking about this and came to the conclusion that taking together all of this means that there's as many aspects to a Kelpie as there are to a werewolf or a vampire. And I started to imagine that it wouldn't have been very difficult for the history of literature to take a slightly different direction, and for us to have seen Kelpies occupying a similarly ubiquitous role to the werewolf or the vampire, first growing up through Gothic literature, then to wider horror, and finally to film and television, probably there shown with some kind of horse's head rather than a full transformation. There really is enough stories and potential to rework what already exists, as was done with the folklore of vampires, which weren't such a developed creature as they later became. Let's imagine a gothic novel about a mysterious Scottish laird or lady who comes to London to experience the modern city. Livers start being found floating to the tops of the Thames. Eventually, of course, the monstrous laird is defeated by a giant fairy rat, bred specially for the purpose in the sewers. There's my pitch for a 19th century gothic novel anyway. Okay, that's pretty much it for this episode. If you go to the website page, you can see pictures of a fantastic sculpture called the Kelpies. It's two absolutely huge statues. I've also linked there a video of a short horror film based on the Echushka Tales. I found this on YouTube just researching this episode, and I really enjoyed it. It's only a few minutes long, but if you start watching, watch to the end. It's damn good. So, some housekeeping. Thank you once again to my patrons. I really appreciate the support you've given me. There are now six patron members episodes, and another one is coming out in May, featuring The Wild Hunt. And there's an earlier episode available now all about the Knuckle of V, which is an even weirder Scottish water horse. You can sign up now, and you'll only ever be charged when I do a new patron episode, which will be, at most, once a month. Many thanks to Christopher, who has signed up recently. Also, as patrons will know, but others might not, I have recently signed up to TikTok. Okay, so this is a bit of a test case, really. What I'm going to do there is short snippets of what I hope are the interesting bits of stories and legends. It's definitely going to feature some stuff that's already been on the podcast, but also bits that don't fit so well into this format. I have no idea how that's going to go. It's very hard to put my face out to the world, but I'm enjoying the process. If that sounds interesting to you, I'll be putting up a few videos there in the days after uploading this episode. Moving from my usual podcast trick of stretching out 20-minute stories into hour-and-a-half epics to instead compressing them into less than a minute or so is certainly testing my skill set. So, I'll see what happens with that, but if it sounds of interest, then obviously search for Tales of Britain and Ireland on TikTok. Okay, next episode really will be on the many dangerous, capricious, and sometimes even helpful fairies of Ireland. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides, and recaps along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and the outro music by Mitch Keeley and Josh Newman. And you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. 
You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. <laughs>